podcast world. What's up? Chad Belding back at you. Another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Thank you all so much for the growth of the podcast, our sister podcast, The Foul Life as well. Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support our properties here, Foul Life TV on the Outdoor Channel, the podcast, our live events, our social media, and soon to be our new provider series of cookbooks, live events, workshops, and an interactive website. Can't wait for y'all to be introduced to the provider. Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast is brought to you by our friends down in Georgia, family, friends, the outdoors, Realtree, and Realtree Fishing, their wave pattern. They have introduced this to the professional, the recreational, all sorts of fishing from bass to trout to sturgeon to offshore, you name it, real trees right in the thick of it again. And today our guest is a person that wears this stuff pretty much religiously. He has turned fishing into his full-time job. I know he used to work in underground utilities. He comes out of the box swinging into the FLW tour and now in the Bassmasters and Bassmaster Classic tour. His name is Stetson Blaylock. He's part of the Real Tree Fishing Team. Stetson from Arkansas. Welcome, my brother. Thanks for having me. Enjoying it. This is, uh, this is, uh, it's, yeah, Realtree has, uh, stepped up the game. It's good to see a company like that get into the fishing industry. It's, uh, it's fun to represent brands that you can do, you know, throughout your entire lifestyle, I guess you would say with the fishing thing for me is my job, but I love to hunt in the fall. So it, it fits perfect. So tell me this. Now I understand if you're up on a mountain and uh, elk's got the best eyesight in the world and you're trying to get an archery kill on an elk you know bugle him in cow call him in you're trying to get a six point on the ground cut the back straps out you're calling a coyote nevada desert high mountain desert you got to look like the sagebrush and the rock piles because their vision's unbelievable you got duck hunting you got a thousand mallards on top of you, you got to be in that new timber pattern that you're wearing or you got to be in max five by real tree because ducks are going to pick you out and go the other way but come on, man, you're going to sit here and try to tell me that a fisherman now has to wear camouflage that's got water colors. You can see I got the vibrant one right here. I got the wave pattern on my hat, my shirt. <clears throat> what could you do if I walk into a retailer? Let's say we're at Max Prairie Wings down in your home state of Arkansas, and you're standing there representing Realtree, and I look at you and go, are we really trying to hide from the fish, or is this a shelf appeal deal? Is this something that looks cool on your rod and your tackle box and the side of your boat and the 3M wrap? Is it just part of that passion of living the outdoors and the camouflage lifestyle, Stetson, or is it really practical? Talk to me about why in the heck would Realtree make camouflage camouflage for fishing well i think there's there's a few ways to look at it one is it's it's a lifestyle everybody knows and and if you look back over the course of history and time even in hunting you know guys way 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 back they didn't have camo they just wore solid colors or whatever they whatever they had to go hunt uh but but real tree stepped up and made it uh, made it a lot easier for us as hunters and now getting into the fishing game, I'm not going to say you have to have it, but I will say, I will, sh I will tell and share some instances where I think it makes a huge difference. For instance, in the springtime, a lot of the fish are up shallow. Uh, you want to have something that's going to break yourself up. Like right now, my favorite thing to do is sight fish. Obviously, we're not on the trail, uh, but when I'm on the trail this time of year, I'm sight fishing and bed fishing in the spring. And those fish have really good eyes and they see movement. I don't know that they necessarily see patterns and colors, but they see movement. And anything that you can wear, uh, I wear a face shield, uh, dark hat, dark clothes, 
And I just feel like that new wave pattern sets up perfect. Uh, obviously, I'm going to wear a gray or a green or a color that's not going to stand out like the, the, the blue hat you're wearing and, or the green shirt you're wearing may not, in my opinion, is not your best choice because it stands out. And I feel like those fish absolutely can see that movement in the boat. Um, obviously, you can have a white bottom boat. I choose. Uh, it's kind of funny, but I have a black bottom boat. I just, I want to be to where anytime I'm around those fish that I'm as stealthy as I can be. And I guarantee you having something on that doesn't stand out makes a difference in that time of year or anytime those fish are up there shallow and you're really trying to, to be stealthy for them. So what color, if, if my shirt or my hat stands out, I got the blue wave and the, in the greener wave. I, I would think that if I, if I'm a fish and my eyes look up and something might move or flash in these colors, I look like an extension of the vegetation or extension of the moss or an extension of the blue water. And it might just be a tree shaking or moving or something that that fish might not, you know, you know, just bum rush out of there or flare off of. But what colors would you say, you, or is it more of a whitish color you want, more of a grayish color you want, more black tint to it? What, what Do you use these real tree patterns that I have on? I do, yeah. I uh, uh, Most of my shirts are the wave or the original fishing pattern that they came out with. And for me, I just want to wear a darker color. I, I feel like the grays, the dark blues, uh, the dark greens, browns, those are all good colors this time of year. But I mean, for me to sit here and say that you got to have a pattern on your shirt to catch them in the spring, that's a little bit get, getting, getting out there a little bit, but I guarantee you to be, to have something that it, it's, it's absolutely a lifestyle brand and a lifestyle feel, but it's all about confidence. And if I'm confident in what I'm wearing, as well as what I'm doing on the water, I know that I'm going to be way more successful. It's just like hunting. This new timber pattern, like the, the shirt and the hat that I'm wearing now, when you're out there in the woods standing beside an oak tree, you disappear. And that's the biggest thing about the, the stuff that we're wearing is it puts you where you need to be. And it keeps people, keeps animals from seeing you and, uh, you know, being more successful. And not to mention the culture that Realtree brings to the game. When you're out on the water and you're part of that Realtree culture and community and you have the support of Mr. Bill Jordan and his family and the entire, pretty much, you know, I'm all the way out in the West United States and Nevada and you have my supporters being part of the team. We get hooked up through a network of knowing guys like, you know, that work at Realtree or part of the management group at Realtree or just this network is so special that we live in the outdoor world. Like I might come to Arkansas and, and, and be down there doing an event and with Max, you might be home. And I say, Hey, teach me out and, and teach me how to top water fish for bass or, you know, it's anything can happen with the network that Realtree has built over the years in the outdoor industry. And I just, I think it's, like a, a sign of just the support of the culture and the lifestyle that Realtree would enter the fishing world and support it and invest in it like they have. And now they have guys that have actually won tour, tour events on not just the FLW, but not just the Bassmasters, but now the Bassmaster Classic. And you are a true 100% full-time professional fisherman, which I would say you, the, the odds of letting, of becoming a professional fisherman and being able to support your family, they're very, very small. 
wall. So that just shows you that guys with your reputation, your intelligence and your success level are supporting this that Realtree is doing. So it's got some validity and it has, you know, it's very, it's very legit. So take me back. You're 33 years old. You're coming up in Arkansas. Do you, when do you start to, to go from, I'm a pretty good fisherman. I love to be fishing. My dad, I used to be in the boat with my dad or my grandpa, my uncles. When does it start to hit you that, man, I could see myself really, you know, taking this to the next step. Was there a high school team? Did you fish in college? How did it all start? Well, for me, the story is uh, it's it's a little different than you might think. I, I've fished growing up forever, but for me, uh, you know, I I was introduced to tournament fishing when I was ten years old. I fished a small tournament, but when I was twelve, my uncle he invited me. He was a really good local tournament fishing fisherman here in Arkansas. He invited me to fish a night tournament on one of the local lakes. I ended up winning. We went. We won that tournament, and I won. Uh, I think we had. Uh, I think we won 500 bucks or something like that so i mean i'm a 12 year old kid with 500 bucks in my pocket from catching bass and uh, i told him i was like hey let's do this again next week so next week we go out we win again and uh, so now i've got a thousand dollars cash money in my pocket as a 12 year old kid and just for me it was it was the love of the competition I, i'm gonna i'm gonna even step out and say it was the love of the competition more than the love of just catching fish. I mean, I do love to catch fish and catch all kinds of fish, but for me, it's that drive of you want to win. I want to be first, no matter what I'm doing. And, you know, so from the time I was 12, fished a couple night tournaments, and he asked me, he asked me at a very young age, 12, 13-ish, right in there, hey, do you think you might ever want to do this for a living? And, you know, the answer right off the bat was absolutely, that'd be super cool. Well, you know, he had some opportunities to go to work for at the time FLW Outdoors. And it was pretty cool that just him working for him and me getting kind of that in behind the scenes look, I wasn't old enough to fish any of their events because you have to be 16. So for about two to three years there, I just traveled with him and actually helped them set up the event. I got to practice with some of the pros. Of course, now the rules have all changed, but back then I could even practice with a pro just for fun during practice and then help them work the event. So I got my foot in the door at a real young age. And actually I started homeschooling right about that time. And I homeschooled all the way through high school so I could travel and tournament fish. I mean, at, at 17 years old, I was traveling the country fishing FLW as an amateur and uh, fished that for four years, won the co-angler amateur of the year award, moved to the front of the boat, uh, had a sponsor that, that offered to pay my way was able to win a tour event my first year out on FLW. So that kind of set the pace to let you know, hey, you can actually do this and compete at a national level. And being able to do that, and then I fished, I think, gosh, I think I was on FLW for six or seven more years, qualified for their championship, I guess, all but one time. Uh, and then I qualified for the Bassmaster Elite Series. And for me, that was always that feather that I wanted to stick in my cap. I wanted to fish on the Bassmaster Elite Series. I just felt like it was the top of the food chain when it comes to professional professional fishing. And being able to qualify for that, I guess, three years ago, made the Elite, fished for two years on the Elite Series, and just didn't ever really get in that groove. I don't know what it was, but 2019 came out swinging. I actually finished runner-up and angler of the year and just kind of got that groove back, got that confidence back that I'd had all those years on FLW. 
And uh, then starting out 2020, had a top 10 in our first event, went to the Bassmaster Classic, had a top five finish there, finishing in third place. And and then the world got rocked. And here we are sitting here today with uh, with not much to do in the in the realm of of uh, pleasure. So we're we're just kind of, you know, holding tight, hoping that the season kicks back off. But but the, the story of my career and how I got to where I am is something I look back on quite regularly because it. It's amazing to see the youth and the next generation coming up now and all the opportunities that they have that I had to just kind of make it up as I went. But all they have to do is open the door and walk right into it with the high school fishing and the college fishing. And and it's great to see companies like Realtree stepping in and helping out this next generation to, to become uh, the next superstars, because I was there one day, not too long ago, just dreaming of being where I'm at. Today. And now you're ranked currently third in the world. If I, if my, uh, my research does me right, which is a short year so far, but you're currently ranked sure. third in the world in, in Bassmaster Classic, but your story is relatable or comparable to that of like a, a Scotty Lego, who's a bronze medalist and a gold medalist in the X games, a bronze medalist and Olympian, Sean White, gold medal in both of them. They, they, they get homeschooled. They're in a VW van. They're traveling from ski resort, mountain to mountain their family supporting them they're 12 years old rocking their slopes and then you know they're both very successful in life you know you get homeschooled taken out of school to young age you're doing your extreme your version of extreme sport because if anybody's ever seen a bass masters competition or an flw it's extreme with just how fast y'all are moving in those boats at times which i want to get into that so explain to me real quick your career starts in the flw the flw is owned by who it started by who why is it started is it considered Considered the minor leagues of Bassmaster, is it still considered professional? How do you how how do you would you define FLW and how is how does it compare to the Bassmasters? Well, to, to to make this as quick as I can, FLW and Bassmaster, FLW Tour and Bassmaster Elite Series were kind of on the same level. Uh, they were two separate organizations. They still are have nothing to do with each other. They just, it's kind of like, uh, I'm going to explain it the best I can, but it's kind of like the, uh, National League and American League in baseball. You know, they're both, they're both at the top level. It's just a different league. And that's the, the only difference in fishing is, is they're owned by different organizations. So it's, it's for me, I just grew up watching Bassmasters, watching that classic every year, watching and, and you got, always got the Bassmaster magazine since I was a little bitty kid. And that's just what I gravitated to. But my, I guess you want to say my foot in the door happened a lot easier with FLW. So that's the route that I took to start my career. Um, now FLW is now owned by another organization. And for me, I feel like I switched over to the Bassmaster Elite Series at just the right time, just for me. They're both great organizations. They both support professional fishing at the highest level. But for me, it's all about Bassmaster. I feel like that's the name that's been around forever. And when somebody, uh, when somebody looks at the sport, Bassmaster is the name that stands out to them. And that's why I've chose to stay there for the last four years. And I plan on being there for the rest of my career. As far as the professional level of it goes, Stetson with the FLW again being compared to Bassmasters, Bassmaster Elite, Bassmaster Classic, do you stand to make the same? quality of living quality of life you're living 
revenue wise if you stay in flw do the sponsors increase if they see that you're now a bass master and does the paycheck and the purses do they increase on a daily level or a week le- weekly level when you travel from location to location well every year uh payouts can can change um obviously some years uh there's there's more sponsor money in the game so there's more payouts to be had they both do a great job i made a solid living on flw for all those years uh, in the Bassmasters right now, the full field of, let's see, I think we have 88 guys in the Elite Series now. Every angler cashes a check, even if you don't catch a bass. So if you have catastrophic failure in the event, you're still going to cash a check. Now, first place is $100,000 for each event. So pays 10 grand down a ways. And then there's, there's good money to be made at each event. But it, it, it's just like anything else, any other sport. Uh, that's out there in the mainstream, you, you've got to have the sponsors. You've got to have the support of those companies in order to make a solid living do this, th- doing this. And for me, being able to do it now, I started when I was 21, was my first season as a pro, now 32. To me, it's that, that's what kept me out here is, is growing those relationships with companies and just being able to maintain a credible name and, and keep, you know, just keep working hard and keep growing up that ladder. And, uh, you know, everybody says one day, you know, I want to be there. Well, I feel like I'm there now, which is, it's a cool thing again to look back on and just see the progression throughout my career. Uh, I think it's awesome. And you're saying that there's only 88 fishermen on the, on the yeah. elite tour. Yes, on the Bassmaster Elite Series, there's 88 guys. Is that the uh, maximum on, on, that will that it'll hold? No, they 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 have a cat. They like to set a number that for one, they want to be able to promote all their anglers. So they want to be able to for the media coverage. If they have too many guys and they can't give everybody the media coverage that they need to keep their sponsors happy, so it's it's for me it's it's a unique situation because there's only 88 guys and you're doing well on an event, you're going to get camera time. And that's what it's all about. That's what the companies want. They want to see your face on ESPN too. And, you know, just like the Bassmaster Classic, it's airing, uh, it aired last Sunday and this Sunday and the final day will be next Sunday. So for me, that's what's big is making sure that you're consistent, making sure that they keep the numbers down in the tour so everybody can get some of that love. Uh, now the other tours, uh, the, the, the Bass Pro Tour that's out there, they have, uh, 80 guys in that one also. And then FLW is now the second tier to the Bass Pro Tour, um, which has, I think, 150 guys. So Bassmaster has the Bassmaster Open. That's how you qualify for the Bassmaster Elite Series. I fished the Opens while competing on FLW Tour. I competed also in those Bassmaster Opens in hopes to qualify for the Elite Series, which I did. It took me four years, I think, to qualify for the Elite Series. And uh, yeah, I have to stay qualified. It's just like in, in the PGA. If you, don't, if you don't perform year after year, you do get cut. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think this year there's going to be some pretty big cuts uh, in our field. So got to maintain that, that qualification every year. Is that does that cause you your competitive drive to practice more? Obviously, you got to hone your skills. Do you get 
anxiety? Do you worry when the, when you when you make a statement like that? This is your livelihood. You don't want to take a step back. If you get cut from your livelihood, do you go back to underground digging or do you go back to the EFLW? I don't know how all that works, but how much pressure is on a guy like Stetson Blaylock when you you make a statement like I could still be cut at 32 years old this far into my career? Man, give you a quick example. You look at guys like Rick Klein. Some of those names like uh, David Fritz, some of those names that have won Bassmaster Classic, several classes, been at the top of their game. They're now uh, on, on the later years of their career, but those guys can still get cut. And they're nowhere near through fishing at this level. They want to be out here just like I do. And, you know, knowing that you can get cut any year if you don't perform, it definitely it definitely adds a little bit of tension to it. But I personally feel like that's what really drives me is not necessarily worrying about if I'm going to get cut because I know if I go perform and do my job every tournament that I'm going to be just fine and that's that's what I hang my hat on work hard and and do your part it's it's you know when the hunting industry it's the same way you can do everything right and not make that kill you cannot make that shot you can do everything you do in the timber. You can have your decoys just right, and the ducks just don't want to come in there that day. And, I, and I've seen that, and I understand that that's exactly how it is in fishing. You do everything right, and they just don't bite, or you lose them halfway to the boat. It can be pretty tedious at times, but for me, you know, the last two years, 2019 and the first part of this year, I've really, really not let that affect me at all. It's just kind of been, instead of it being – on the forefront of my mind, every tournament, I put it on the very far back edge of it. I still think about it, but when you when you don't dwell in that and you go out there and you work hard, it's a whole lot easier to perform and not worry about those opportunities. So as a professional athlete, you're an athlete. You you make money performing and being competitive. What's the is there an off season? When is the off season of a Bassmaster professional? And are you in the weight room? Are you training? Are you running? Do you have to have your cardio up? I, you got to stay in shape. You want to make sure that you can fish every day of the week and practice. I, we're going to get into how the week rolls out during the season. And when you're on the quote unquote on the trail, um, are you keeping up with your diet, your nutrition, your your physical being, your aesthetics? You want to look good for your sponsors. You want to look good when you and your wife see you on ESPN. How does that play into your mind as far as the, the off-season and the preparation with your training re- regimen? Well, I think for everybody on the trail, it's different because when you, you know, a lot of people, they think of fishermen, they think of you go sit out on the creek bank and cast your pole over in the water and wait on something to bite, you know, pull your bobber under. And that's not, that's as far from the truth as, as you can possibly get with what we do. Uh, our off seasons usually start around September, October. So it's, it's just right for those guys like myself that like to hunt. So we can, you know, finish our season and go right into hunting, whatever it may be. But, you know, we usually are in off season through January, but you got to think as soon as the season ends, we are, we have to start working towards those sponsors. And like myself, I've got a whole list of companies that, that I have to stay on top of, whether it be content, media, social media, everything that they need. And then finalizing those contracts for the next year and the next year and moving on. There's really no off season, in my opinion, once you reach that elite series level. So it, it can be kind of tricky to manage all that and still have time for family and your other hobbies like hunting in the fall. Uh, but as far as, as far as workout regimen goes, 
I don't know necessarily if working out is as important as your nutrition. And that's one thing that I try to, uh, to watch carefully. I don't drink any soft drinks whatsoever, no energy drinks whatsoever. For me, it's, it's sports drinks, water, uh, sweet tea is really good. I try to limit myself on that to one a day, but I think eating is probably one of the most important things because a lot of fishermen you see and you, you talk to, they don't eat or drink anything because they're so focused on fishing and on that tournament and getting that next bite that they forget. And what they don't know about that and don't understand about that is they're destroying their body by not giving it the proper nutrition that it needs. I eat three or four times a day while I'm on the water, as well as having something to hydrate all day long from the very first cast of the morning to the time I lay down at night. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, fortunately, we get to travel. My family gets to travel with me. So my wife and two kids, I've got a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, and, and they get to travel with me. So she gets to cook healthier meals. We camp a lot. We've got a fifth wheel we take with us about half the year. We rent houses the other half the year, depending on where we're going and, and that sort of thing. So we do keep a pretty, I'm not going to say strict diet, but we do keep a, a diet that will uh, will make sure that we can perform at peak peak performance all year long. And I think that makes a big deal. Now, working out to me, it's something that I try to stay is try to do, but I don't enjoy it like some other people do. So it's hard for me to get up every day and go to the gym. But for me, I think that routine of just what you put in your body is, is the most important thing when you're out there. Because see, like in the, in when I fish all winter or we have some cold tournaments in the first parts of the year, your body burns a lot of fuel in those early, early tournaments when you've got all those clothes on. And then in the summer when it's a hundred degrees, I'm out there at 5 a.m. and I don't quit till it's dark. So that can be 9, 30, 10 o'clock some nights. There's not much time for downtime. So you've got to be, you've got to be in shape to hang with it as much as I feel like I need to, to perform and to be able to have that competitive edge over the other anglers. Love it. Where's your favorite place to fish if you had to pick one? If I'm fishing for largemouth, I'm going to say Lake Fork in Texas. If, uh, and it's only four hours down the road from my house, so I, I spend quite a bit of time there. We actually have an event there scheduled for June. Hopefully, we get to get to fulfill that one. But uh, if I'm fishing for smallmouth, and probably my all-time favorite lake would have to be Lake St. Clair in Michigan, uh, right there around Detroit. That lake is absolutely loaded with smallmouth bass. Uh, we finished our season there last year, was able to take a runner-up, uh, finished there also, had had... 24 pounds of smallmouth for two days and then 22 and some change the last day, which is unheard of for five fish limit. And this is a, is it comparable to catch a smallmouth as opposed to a largemouth? Did the smallmouth fight more? Um, what is the difference mainly? And I'm going somewhere with this line of questioning. I'm just trying to get my marble straight before I throw it at you. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think smallmouth, they definitely fight harder. Uh, it seems like largemouth have a a real hard hit right off the bat, but as soon as you fight them halfway to the boat, a lot of times they, they kind of give up. Smallmouth do not give up. Even once you have your finger in their mouth pulling them over in the boat, they're still fighting you every minute. So if you're going to Lake St. Clair, Michigan, and you're going to go compete, what day do you leave Arkansas 
does the tournament start on Thursday or Friday and how many practice days are there in there for you to get acquainted with the water? Sure. So we have, we have an off limits that starts when the schedule's announced. So as soon as we get the dates for the following year, we have an off limits time. So we can't make any phone calls, get any information whatsoever. We can still be on those bodies of water by ourselves or with somebody that's family that has not been on that water, that has no previous knowledge of that fishery up until 30 days before practice starts. So, you know, just for that, that tournament, for instance, I would drive up, I'd probably leave on a, uh, it's a day and a half drive. So I'd probably leave on a Friday, get up there on a Saturday afternoon. Practice would start Sunday morning, uh, practice Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, or depending on how the schedule lays out, we'll practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the tournament would start on Thursday. The full field would fish Thursday and Friday. And then only, let's see, how is it this year? The top, Gosh, we've only had one seat, one tournament. So I think it's the top 40, 45 guys make the first cut. And then after that, it's only the top 10. So, so when you say the elite series, back to the beginning of the conversation, 88 guys are in it. You, you don't have to go to every tournament, right? That's up to you to fulfill for your revenue and for your sponsors, correct? You can go to as many or as least as you want. Well, yes, you can, but. I mean, if you want to, you're not going to qualify for their championship for the classic unless you show up for all the events. For all the events, so, which is a, which is about how many? That, um, there's, let's see, I think there's nine regular season events, eight, eight to ten, depending okay, on the year. Some years there's more. So it just depends on what what the schedule lines out. But for me, there's no option for not going. Uh, the only time that I've seen guys actually not go is. A, if there's an emergency situation where they can't come, or B, at the end of the year, if they're so far down in the standings, they don't financially see it beneficial to show up to that event. But for me, in my situation, and knowing knowing the sponsors that I have and the partnerships that I have, those companies don't expect anything but you to be there every single time. And that's, that's what, that's what, to me, doesn't give you an option to not go, no matter how your season's going. So you, your, your practice on, let's say it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday practice. This lake is known for small mouths as opposed to the body of water you mentioned in, in Texas for larges. Mm-hmm. How, how different is when, when we're fly fishing, you match the hatch, you're hunting fish, you got nymphs, you got, you know, flow, you got indicators, you got dry flies. You're trying to match the bugs that are coming off of that day at that time of the day, that exact minute or hour. You're looking for moving water and, and, and steel water and the ripples and, and all of that stuff. Right. So you're really, you're really changing your baits quite a bit, depending on what the day brings. Is there a big difference in your tackle box for success? Is it weather driven? Is it water driven is it species driven how does a professional bass fisherman know what to tie onto his line before he goes for the money well for me the further along in my career that i go i find myself downsizing my 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 tackle pile i guess you'd say um i can take i can take a a fairly small amount of tackle with me and feel like i'm going to be successful however I have I have a, a a drawer system in my truck that's level full. I have tubs in under my camper shell that are level full. I take as much stuff as I think, but one key that I try to do is I try to 
understand where we're going. If I've never been there, I'll, the first thing I want to do is take a look at maps. I want to see what style of lake this is. Uh, I want to do my research because we can, in the realms of our rules, we can do research uh, that's public. So anything that's public for that lake, we can research it. We can find out what's been going on. Uh, is, is this lake a, a clear, deeper lake? Is it shallower and stained water? So I'm going to eliminate half my tackle by knowing what the water looks like. And if you've ever been up to Lake St. Clair in Michigan, it is crystal clear. And those smallmouth, there's largemouth in it too, but smallmouth win the event. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, a northern fishery, smallmouth bass is what I'm going after. I'm going to take stuff that looks like what they eat. So they eat a lot of gobies. So little green pumpkin baits, small, small baits. Uh, they eat a lot of perch and bluegill. So I'm going to take perch-colored crankbaits, bluegill-colored crankbaits, spinnerbaits that are bright chartreuse because smallmouth love bright chartreuse stuff. Uh, to me, that's what it's all about is just knowing before you ever pack your truck what kind of fishery you're going to be fishing at and what those fish like to do there because it's kind of like a... Uh, put it in hunting terms, you know, ducks are ducks. They do the same thing no matter where they are. Yes, their their patterns will vary, but they do pretty much the same thing. And that's exactly how bass are. You can have smallmouth bass, spotted bass, or largemouth bass, but they all eat, and that's what they do. And that's one thing I get a kick out of people going to the lake, and they come home, and they say, man, they wasn't biting very good today. Yes, there's days that they don't bite real good, but somewhere on that body of water, there's fish biting. You just have to figure out what they want and what they're doing. And for me, I think the most important thing is to know where the fish are. If you find the fish, you're going to catch them. If you throw something that even remotely resembles what they want, if you're around them, they're going to eat, especially if there's a lot of them, because that's what they do. So if you're practicing Stetson and you get up there, it's a law, it's a big body of water. It's clear. You just said what kind of, of diet these fish are going to hone in on. What do you do on the first day? You've got your maps, your Google earth, you got the lay of the land. Do you go look for the most undergrowth? You look for the most structure. You look for the most rock piles. What are you looking for on that first day? Like where does your boat go as soon as you leave the dock? Well, for instance, there, uh, I've been there a few times and I understand that lake and I understand it's like a bowl. It's real flat. You can be two miles offshore and you're still in 12 to 15 feet of water. It's not real deep. There's not a lot of structure there. It's all grass. And for the most part, the grass is, is pretty short, meaning it doesn't grow up very high off the bottom. So I kind of know that I have to find that depth range. Are they in that four to six, eight to 12? 12 to 16 or deeper than 16. And once I kind of, uh, you know, figure that out, then I'm, then I'm going to look for areas that have bigger fish because you're going to catch those bigger fish in that same depth range all over the lake for the most part. You just got to find those stretches. What I call stretches is sections of the lake where you're going to catch those bigger fish that are going to get you the quality, the tournament quality fish to where you can be in contention to win at the end of four days. And that's the biggest thing for me. 
in duck hunting, you hear a bunch of shots going off. It goes, oh man, they're really in them over there. Sometimes you walk in there the next day, you've done all your due diligence, your scouting, your homework, your pre, you know, your pre-hunt preparation. You go in there and guess what? Somebody's in your spot, right? They go, hey, we yep. first come, first serve. What is the rules of the Bassmaster Elite and Classic Series Tour? And what is the respect like between competitors and your friends? I'm sure you're friends with a lot of them. Um, does sure. it ever get heated like NASCAR does? Even on the public public boat ramps of your home state it has been known for fist fights the boat races of arkansas uh, public flooded timber fist fights and just total ignorance of like people running into each other and bumping in like bumper cars right what is the rules can you go out and practice and find them and then somebody goes in there and, and just smokes your spot or is there a certain level of respect that goes into it as well well, going back to duck hunting, I've only been doing it for five years now, so I'm, I'm still fairly new to duck hunting, he, even here in Arkansas. My brother's done it his whole life. I just got into it because I fished all winter, but now that I've been doing it, I got to get in on that last bit of that free free running in, in Biomeda and those places here in Arkansas where you see those fist fights and you see those bumper boats. I got to be in on that the first couple of years I hunted. And, and the way that it differs on the trail is you can, for instance, I find I have found the winning school of fish probably, I'm going to say a dozen times in the last five years of my career. And only one time did I win off of those fish simply because all these guys are good. There's no limits to where they can go. So if, if I find a school of fish, who knows? They may have found them later that afternoon or the next day of practice, and I didn't see them. I didn't know they were in there. So I run in there to my spot, and I catch my fish, and I leave because I'm saving them for the next day, right? So then I go back in there the next day. I'm a later boat number because say I draw boat two first day, they flip the boat numbers for the second day. So I'm actually the la second to last going out on day two. So a guy, I pull in there, and I, I pull into my spot, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? This was my spot. That's where I caught every fish yesterday. He's like, well, I did too. And I didn't see you in here. So yeah, you'll have those run ins, but then you talk it out and you understand that I caught my fish by nine 30 and I left. He came in at 1145, caught his fish and he left saving them for the next day. So now we're in there together thinking, where was you at yesterday? But then you talk it out and you're like, oh, man, we found the same fish. Let's work together now and see if we can't make the best situation here so we can both, <clears throat> excuse me, if we don't win, we can both have a top 10 finish, hopefully. And that's what it's all about, because talking about the elite series, so we fish those eight or nine or 10 elite tournaments to qualify for the one Bassmaster Classic every year. So if I'm if I if, if him and I get into an argument and I say fine I'm out of here you can have it he goes on to finish second I go on to finish thirty second that's a lot of points that I may have needed by the end of the year to make that classic qualification so I always try my best if I find a school of fish that somebody else found or if they find a school of fish that I found I try my best to work with them to where we can both yeah you say dang it that's the winning school of fish if i had it to myself but obviously i don't so why don't me and you both try to make the top 10 here we'll both make our sponsors happy we'll both get good points and a great paycheck and we'll go to the next one 
So as opposed to like a car race where you hear the thing pole position, right? So Indy 500, you go the day before and you get a pole position. You get your position in that race of when you take off. The better you finish in, pole, in, the, in the preliminaries is you're going to be your better starting point. In golf, Tiger Woods tees off with this guy on Thursday. If he makes the finals on Sunday, they might the leaders are, are the last to tee off. But the only thing that can really affect that is everybody knows that the holes on the putting greens are going to change. They're going to cut them and, and, and drill them somewhere else each day. Um, the wind might be blowing harder when Tiger tees off in the afternoon. The rain might come in, which, which you know, inhibits his ability to score well on the course. But you're telling me that in, in fishing that you guys don't all take off at the same time and, and get the same sunlight, the same angle of the sun, the same water temperature. You might be fishing later than you did the day before. Because your well, boats, it, your boat switch, it, it's not necessarily as drastic as you might think. So when we take off the day before the tournament starts, we have a pre-tournament meeting, and they do, I guess you'd call it random boat draw. It's computer computer draw numbers. So I may draw, let's just say I draw boat one, and I'm like, yes, I've got a spot a spot that I think I can win on. So I run in there, shut down my fish are there, they're biting. I catch my twenty pounds and I leave. Okay. For one, I don't want to sit there and catch more than I need because I've still got three, potentially three days of the tournament. So when I leave that area, even if it's 30 minutes after the morning, the guy that took off boat two, so we take off one, two, three in a single file line. So if you're the last guy out, you're only missing 15 minutes. You know, the guy, the first guy took off 15 or 20 minutes ahead of you. So yeah, he may get to his spot first. But the next day, you're going to be number one. So, yes, there is – there's not a qualification system, I guess, the way that you take off. But there is a respect. Like, I'm boat one. I pulled up to this spot. The guy that's boat five pulls up right behind me, and he goes, oh, you found these fish too. Okay, so I pull up. I'm number one. I catch them. And he's like, hey, let me get some. So he gets in there and catches them. Then day two, he's going to be – five boats ahead of me so i have to hope that he respects me enough and i let him come in and catch his fish on day two he's going to let me come in because i know he's going to beat me to that spot now not all all the time it doesn't work that way sometimes they'll say you know what you found these first you can have them you know good luck but not very often because as the tournament progressive progresses we will be more and more lenient just for instance say it's day three and I roll into an area, and the guy leading the tournament is in that area. So by day three, I know pretty much where everybody's fishing. But I didn't know this guy was back there. I run in there, and he's back there. I'm not going to pull in there on his spot fish, even if I found those fish, because he's leading the tournament on the third day. So for the previous two days, I didn't even go in there. That's where the respect aspect comes into play on all major fishing trails is if you're way behind, you don't go in on somebody that's leading the tournament or in the top five. Now, if you're both in the top 10 and y'all are kind of sharing water anyway, then yes, you work together the best you can. But I'm competing to catch more than that guy sitting right next to me. Even though we're catching the same fish, I want to beat him just as bad as he wants to beat me. But we both know this is our best area. So we're going to work together, be respectful of each other's cast, and try to make it the best that we can. So you're saying there's competitors that know going out on the last day of the competition or the tournament that they have zero chance of being on the podium? 
no, not on the final day because the top 10, to me, it's a win if you make a top 10. There's 88 guys. If you make it the final day and you're sitting in 10th place, you're going to have a Bassmaster live camera in your boat all day, no matter what. If I'm 10 pounds behind on a lake that's full of two pounders but doesn't have very many big fish, yes, I kind of feel like I'm out of it because I'm 10 pounds off the lead. And if that guy goes and catches what he's been catching, there's no chance for me to catch up. But on some lakes, where there's lots of big fish, like Lake St. Clair, where I'm talking about, if you're a couple, three pounds behind and you're in 10th place, you still have a chance to win that event. A better chance, I should say. Because it's fishing. It's nature. Anything can happen. The top three guys could go out and not catch a bass. So you could be in one of the last few places and win. It has happened. If you go back last year in 2019, you will see two events where the guy in 10th place came from 10th to win on the final day. But in, as a general rule of thumb, if you, if you know where some guys are fishing, you don't just blow in there because you know they're fishing there. Now, if you fished there the first three days and you shared it, yes, then you can still go in there. And it all, every situation varies. And I'm not saying that everybody gets along because that's not how human beings are. Pe- people are uh, competitive by nature and that's, that's, I have seen it happen a lot where guys get into it on the water, but as a, as a, as a general picture, we want to be respectful because we know we have a whole season to compete against these people. And maybe the next time the roles reversed and you need them to be gracious to you so you can catch your fish. So I, I try my best to be as gracious as I can and still be able to do my job. So if you don't have a camera from the Bassmaster film crew in your boat, if it's not the finals, if it's the Thursday, the opening day of the competition, are you by yourself in the boat or does the Bassmasters have to have a spotter in there to prohibit anybody we, from cheating? Yeah, well, for one, there's there's very little, I'm going to say very slim to none, rule breaking, intentional rule breaking. There's obvious all the time people make mistakes. They fish in an off-limits area. They idle across the cove without their life jacket on. That kind of stuff, to me, is not cheating. That that doesn't change the outcome of the event, and especially if they do something that they know is an infraction after the fact, and they come in and say, hey, look, I made an honest mistake. Uh, I, I want to correct this and make it right. But, yes, we do have marshals, is what they call it, in everybody's boat. And if there's a tournament where we don't have enough marshals for everybody, then they do a random truth verification test, you know, daily. So you definitely don't want to be in the wrong or on the wrong side of that because it's kind of like in other sports, you know, you see on social media, so-and-so got banned for some substance or whatever the case may be. Word travels fast in the fishing industry and it's such a small industry in the big picture of things. You don't want that kind of rap on your name. So it's, it's best to you know, follow those rules tight as you can. And yes, the Marshall program is a great way to keep everybody on it. So when you get to the level you are and, you, and you're tied in with these competitors that would be considered at your same level, right? Like there's there's Major League Baseball players and then there's Mike Trout. Even Mike Trout strikes out a bunch. Even Mike Trout gets at, Mike Trout gets out all the time, but he's still considered by most the best player in the game, if not all time, of at least right now. Sure. What differ, differentiates 
the top fisherman? Is it is it knowing the lay of that lake? Because it seems to me that, and I want to go into specifics like casting and the different casts and matching baits and driving boats and and be. But it seems to me like the main ingredient once you get to your level of success and your, um, you know, your professionalism as a fisherman and an angler, that the only thing that would really separate you guys would be known the body of water and, and finding the fish because with your talents and your presentation, I know is key, which I want to get into the presentation of making that bait swim the right way. What is that? Is that fair to say that, that really what separates y'all is getting to the right spot on the water? Yeah. A lot of times at this level, <clears throat> I see, uh, there's, there's different mental aspects and in, in professional fishing, the mental side of it, I'm not exaggerating when I say I think it's 80 to 90 percent of what we do, because I'm going to be honest with you. I know some high school kids that can cast and fish just as good or better than myself. But what's up here and what I've learned in all my experiences from fishing tournaments, fishing five bass limit tournaments, I know what it takes to win. And I think that's just the difference that separates uh, a, a high school or novice angler. I'm not saying high schoolers are not professional anglers, but what I'm getting at is those people that don't do it for a living or that are wanting to do it for a living. What separates us, in my opinion, is just that mental aspect, knowing that it may be two o'clock. You got to check in at three and you don't have a fish in the boat and you know, you have one hour to catch five fish to make it back to the scales to save your whole season and being able to stay mentally strong and focused on the next cast, the next cast, the next target, the next move. Do I stop on this point? Do I pass it to go to the next point? All that stuff is right here. And that's what makes you stronger and helps make, helps you make decisions on the water just that fast, because that's what it's all about. Being able to make fast split second decisions that when you pull up and you catch that four pounder on the last cast and you run back in going, People are going to think I smashed them today and I didn't even have a limit till the last cast. It's all in your head. And yes, we all have fast, good boats. We all have the best products out there. Uh, it's just like baseball players. They all swing different brand bats, different gloves, different shoes, but they all are at the top level, no matter what brand they use. So it's what separates us. Sometimes it can be research. And I'll be honest, there's sometimes on certain bodies of water, I have worked harder than anybody else there in my mind, and yet I get beat to my spot. And when I get beat to that spot, I'm sitting there trying to trying to mentally stay together to where I can go, okay, he's there, no big deal. I'm going to run out to the next spot. I'm going to go to this to my plan B and try to figure him out enough to win on plan B. And I think that's the biggest thing is is being able to mentally stay strong make the right decisions on and off the water that are going to set yourself up for success in those tournaments because you only get an eight-hour day. Everything has to go right to be successful out there. So how long – let's take this, for example, um, what you say and being able to have the ability to make split-second decisions. You found the fish. You're in them on the practice days. You get out there. You, you drop boat number one or two. How many casts Stetson, or how long do you stay in that spot before your your instinct kicks in? Time to go. We got to find another spot and go to Plan B. Man, it varies, and I'll, I'll tell you how it works for me. I see a lot of guys pull in an area where they knew there there's a big school of fish, 
they thought that was their place that they're going to catch their quick limit and be able to go leave that catch a limit leave there go find bigger fish if i pull in there knowing those fish are there i'm looking for 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 i'm looking for certain things on the water or with the day so for instance here in arkansas today it was it was 40 degrees this morning it's going to be in the 30s tomorrow so if i'm starting a tournament tomorrow i'm not going to run straight to the bank and try to catch one off a bed because Yes, I know they're still spawning because it's April, but those 30-degree nights will back those fish off a little bit. So I may even change my game plan before I ever even start the event. And that's one big thing to me that I think a lot of people, again, it's right here. What do I need to do? How can I look at this situation and make the best decision to be successful? And for instance, at the Classic this year at Lake Gunnersville. I found some fish in the back of a creek that were schooling on shad. The first night of the tournament, we had a big storm blow through. Cold front came in. I pulled in though, in there in that area. Those fish were completely gone. I did not see any shad activity. Didn't see any fish chasing those shad. But I stuck with it a little bit longer than I probably should have. And I found a little school. I'm talking about one particular cast over and over. And I caught a limit of fish in the first 30 minutes out of that one particular spot there was zero fish anywhere else in that pocket that was absolutely full of fish two days prior to that that's those decisions that mentally you have to be able to talk yourself through it do i stay do i keep fishing till i locate the school because i know they're still here or do i run and take a chance on finding them somewhere else and i think it's just we all make those decisions differently uh, you'll see that if you watch us on TV. You'll see guys pull into a spot. They make three casts. They're like, nope, this ain't it. Time to go. And they run. Or some guys like myself pull in there. They make a few casts. Then they analyze what they're seeing and feeling before they make a, a quick move. And for me, I just feel like I've done better by giving it just an extra five or ten minutes to analyze it. Not necessarily to say I need to make ten more casts, but just I'm going to make ten more casts, but I'm going to be thinking and analyzing what my next move needs to be before I just blow out of here and say it's over with. When the, when the Bassmasters elite and classic go to set the tournament schedule and the locations and everything, do they look at a lunar map and do they get the schedule of the full moon and try not to schedule a tournament with your guys's caliber of fishing and the money on the line during the full moon? And is that question stupid because the moon phase has nothing to do with the success on water or does it have something to do with it? And when you're talking about adapting, when you know you're going into that that moon phase, the beginning of the full moon, not the dark of the moon or the tail end, do you go out later? Do you want to be one of those later boats? Do you want to be early because the fish have been up all night and they're not back in bed yet? How does that work? Well, I'm not a I'm not a moon phase guy. Um, I know in hunting, I think it makes a lot bigger difference than it does in fishing because when I'm tournament fishing. We don't get to pick. Yes, yes, the organization tries to set us up on bodies of water at their peak time. Now, that doesn't matter really necessarily about the moon phase as much as in February in Florida, fishing's usually good. In Alabama in March, early March, fishing's usually good. In Tennessee in April, May, and June, fishing's usually good. Then we go to New York and Michigan in those sept August, September months, because fishing's usually good. But the moon phase, to me, the only time I've seen it make a real big difference, in my personal opinion, this is just me speaking, is around the spawn. 
the full moon in April, those fish do make that big push to the bank. But I still personally feel like the temperature, the air temp, that water temp, when it reaches 60, 62 degrees, those fish know that it's time to go to the bank no matter what phase the moon is in. Um, but to answer your question about is there sometimes you want to be in that later flight? Yes, because check-in for the first flight, guys, is at 3 o'clock. If you're in one of those later flights, you may not check in until 4 o'clock. So you get a whole extra hour on the first day or the second day, depending on how your draw goes, to, to fish longer in the day. So in those early months, say you're at Gunnersville in March, Yes, when that water warms up in the afternoon, sometimes you have a, a greater opportunity to catch a bigger fish. So that extra hour can help you out on that particular day. But you have to remember, you may not, you're not going to have that hour on the next day because your boat number is going to be reversed. So you have to utilize that and take advantage of all those opportunities that you get, whether it be a later boat draw or if you have an earlier boat draw. You want to make that move to your best spot where you think you can catch them right off the bat so somebody else don't beat you to it. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things that you have to – it's more than just let me tie on my cricket and go out there and see if I can catch one. So in fly fishing, back to that, because that's what our family around here does mainly. We don't have a lot of bass waters where we grew up. Um, sure. You got the four weight. You got the five weight, the six weight rods. You got the different weight line. You are going – species specific are you tarpon fishing your cast might have to be 100 100 yards of that or, you know 100 feet at that time and uh, not 100 yards 100 feet at that time are you going are you fishing for trout on the little Truckee river in california where you might have this size rod or is it more universal in bass masters um elite and classic to where if i go out to any given tournament and i measured everybody's fishing rod would they all be the exact same same with the weight of the line the reels is i know with scientific and the evolution of product you guys are in the heyday of it you're fishing with the best product of all time scientifically with that you know with that in mind not to say that guys in the 70s weren't catching as many fish i don't know the history of it but is it pretty universal in bass fishing no I, I, I to answer that question there's no doubt we have way better equipment and i think because of that we do catch more fish on a given day than some of those guys back in in the in the in the early 80s and 70s back then uh because our electronics our rods and reel our line is so advanced the hooks are are surgically sharpened nowadays i mean there's things that you can be a subpar angler and still use or just a, a weekend i'm not even meaning subpar but just a weekend angler and use the same quality stuff that we use there's no I mean, there's no secret to what we use. The rods and reel that I use, you can go buy off the Academy store shelf in the store and use the exact same thing that I'm using. So to me, the the equipment we use, yes, it's all basically the same, but you've got three or four different gear ratio reels. You've got bait casters, you've got spinning reels, you've got mono, fluorocarbon, braided line. You've got every single kind of hook imaginable. Uh, there's, there's, yes, you've got anywhere from a six foot rod that some guys still use all the way to eight foot rods that guys use nowadays. So there's no limit to what we can use. I personally carry probably 60 rods to an event, uh, probably half that many reels. And I'll usually keep anywhere from 18 to 30 in the boat, ready to go at all times. 18 to 30. Yes. Because I don't want to have to, when I'm practicing, I'll have more. Because I've got a different bait or the same bait, three colors tied on. 
And I want to narrow that down as fast as possible. So those practice days, I'm changing, I'm changing. And I don't want to have to sit down when I say change. I don't want to have to sit down and re-spool, re-rig, re-tie new baits on. I want to be able to just sit down that rod, pick up another one, and go right back to work. Where do they, where are they at in the boat? Are they all in the floor? Are there is there is there something built into the floor of the bass boats that I don't know about that holds that many rods? Yeah, the rod boxes nowadays on these boats will hold anywhere from twenty to thirty rods comfortably. I mean, you you know, some of us cram thirty or forty in there, and they're packed in there like sardines. But you know, I'll usually have that many anywhere from ten to twenty in the box, and then I'll have anywhere from depending on how well I'm on them. If I'm on the fish really good, I don't need but four or five rods on the deck. But if I'm kind of struggling and know that I may have to bounce around here and there to catch them, I'm going to have five or six on this side, five or six on this side on top of the deck strapped down a- every day. So when, you cut, when, you get, when you're in the boat and you're running across, is there a, uh, an advantage of the lighter the boat, the better, or it doesn't matter in Bassmasters? You can, you're, you're rolling, you can have whatever you want in there. Yeah, their rules are, I think you have to have a certain horsepower. You can't go below a certain horsepower. And I know you can't go above a 250 horsepower, which is what 95% of the field runs nowadays is 250. So how but fast I, are you I, going? Oh, 70 all day long. And that doesn't scare you at all? No, because I've been doing it since I was a kid. I mean, it, it to me... Riding in a boat going 70 is just like walking down your driveway. I don't even think about that anymore. That seems very fast, Stetson. I want you to really, really be cautious and safe, okay, when you're out there the next time. Well, you're, going we, seven, it, you're, you're going 70 miles an hour. You you know where you're going. Your mind starts to tell you. You start to visualization is a huge, huge part of success in anything in life, in my opinion, from hitting a baseball to landing a business deal to being a, fa- a, a, a professional angler on the Bassmasters Elite Tour. You start to visualize. You sure. start to approach your spot. What's going on now? You're, you're behind the wheel, right? You don't have a chauffeur when you're a professional bass fisherman right you're you're driving the boat you're pulling up you're letting off the accelerate you're coming to your slowdown you pick your final spot where you're going to park before you get up on the platform not really a platform but the flat deck up front of your boat sure and you're getting ready to throw that first cast take me through leaving the dock and getting that spot you drop anchor do you put your trolling motor down you got you got you're controlling it with your foot at this point tell me what goes on from there well i'll i'll throw another another crazy scenario at you so let's let's say i'm taking off and i'm i'm halfway to my spot running 70 miles an hour and something in my mind clicks and i see the wind blowing over on a rocky point there and i'm like oh i better stop there real quick i go from 70 to zero in five seconds jump up on the front deck throw my trolling motor in the water and i'm picking up a bait that i had no intentions of throwing and i'm starting my day just off of a whim of man, that looks really good. There should be a big one pulled up there feeding on shad from the night before. I want to make three or four casts there to make sure that there's not a a tournament winning fish there before I go on about my day. I've done that so many times where you're like, you, you, you practice, you prepare, you have this game plan in your mind and then you're taking off and it's time your game started. They've already hit the, the green button. You're on go and you run into your, your first stop and you go, Oh, that looks really good. You whip over there and you shut down. Now your whole day's changed because of one decision you made. Now you have to say, okay, I think there's going to be several boats in my other area where I planned on starting. So now what do I do? And that to me is what separates 
I'm going to say the men from the boys is knowing how to make that decision and it be the right decision more times than it's not. So you get you when you pull up to this spot, you already told yourself, I'm letting my A game go. My A, not my A game, but my number, my A spot, my number yeah, one. Yeah. Somebody mm-hmm. might go get it now because I decided yep, I saw exactly. this wind blowing. So it could bite you in the butt. But if it doesn't, it can. winning and success is all about taking risks, right? It is. So you're saying it, it, you could you'll know in three casts if you if that big fish that big that big guy's eating on shad the night before and he's just schooled up there a little bit. It, it all depends, but yeah, pretty quick you'll know. And there's times I'll pull up and go, man, this is perfect. I run over there, shut down, jump up, make a cast, and I'll go, ooh, this doesn't look like it did when I was running by. And I throw my trolling motor down, strap my rods down, I'm back up running before the next guy even comes by. I mean, there's no set time or length of cast you have to make. I mean, there's times I've pulled up to a bank, jumped up on the front deck, dropped my trolling motor, looked at it, go, nope, this ain't it slow my throw my trolling motor down and away i go i didn't even unstrap my rods but i can tell by looking that it's not right so when you are when when it is right and you throw that first crankbait is that safe to say they're all crankbaits are they all crankbaits when you get to this oh, level no. fish okay so no, that's not safe to say there's, there's no t- there's there is i would say i don't i don't have a number on it but i would say i could come up with at least two to three thousand different rigs that i could throw Three thousand. Can you given report? Time. Can you report back to us tomorrow with a picture of each one so we can put them on the website? Ooh, Three thousand of them, buddy. A, it would take a minute. <laughs> hey, but, but here's here's the deal. There is certain things that like what I was saying a while ago. I know when I get to a lake, if the crankbait's going to be the deal, I'm going to have three of them tied on, and that's going to be my first cast every time. But sometimes it may be a jerk bait. It may be a Texas rig worm. It may be a Carolina rig lizard. It may be a lipless bait, a vibrating jig, a spinner bait, a top water, a popping style top water, a chugging style top water, a walking style top water, a buzz bait, a frog. I mean, I just named off 10 or 10 of them right there and I ain't even started the day yet. So there's so many different variations and then you've got different colors of all those variations. So it is a never ending game to figure out what it's going to take but most americans love to eat a big mac they can say that mcdonald's sucks or the french fries suck whatever but i'm going to say that they're not being truthful if you can honestly tell me that mcdonald's food doesn't taste good don't fish look at it the same that there's got to be some common denominator common thread out there that they're all going to go that's for me now i might say i'm tired of mcdonald's you know on the seventh day i mean i don't know if you've seen the documentary called supersize me but it's like i'm tired (laughs) of mcdonald's finally right but yep i know fish can get tired of something is it really dictated at that point by the water temperature and then and mother nature doing her thing of because there's got to be some consistency along those three thousand combinations that you've won most of your tournaments on yeah i'll tell you one really thing you don't have to give me any secrets though no i i don't i don't have secrets bass bass are bass and all they do there's three things they do they swim they eat, and in the springtime, in some places in the country, they spawn two or three times a year, depending on where you're at. So that's it. So if they're not spawning, they're swimming and eating. That's it. That's all they're doing. So, yes, there's there's certain baits that they eat all year long, and one of those baits is a wacky rig. It is a straight stick worm. Uh, I like the yum dinger. It's about five inches long, and it's straight just like it. It's the same size as a Sharpie marker with the lid on it. 
And what I do is I take a simple hook, just a short little small hook, hook it right in the middle of that where my worm's hanging like this on either side. And I'm putting that on light tackle, eight pound test fluorocarbon line on a spinning type, a spinning type rod. So even, even my son loves to throw that rig. It's a very simple rig. A kid can, can catch tons of bass on it. It works 90% of the year. If the fish are shallow, you throw it with no weight. If they move out a little deeper, you take a, you can use uh, a nail from the hardware store or you can buy specific lead nails from the tackle store that go in the end of that worm to give it a faster rate of fall. Now, all that being said, that bait is something that I throw almost all year round and it catches me a lot of fish. I've won, uh, I've won one major tournament and probably 10 top tens on it in the last three or four years. I mean, it's just a bait that catches fish. So yes, there are those top baits in the wintertime. We can't throw it in our tournaments, but the Alabama rig, it's the umbrella rig style bait that works all winter long. It doesn't matter where you live. And to me, you just have to find what makes you feel confident that you can win. That's what it's all about. What works for you may not work for me. And that's okay because I have what my confidence baits are, and I know that I'm going to be successful on those baits. So you hit that cast and it's perfect. He's on. You're fighting him. Give me the average duration of time that it takes from the time you know that that fish is on. You've started to set your hook. From the time that you start to say, whoa, it's go time, and you pull back and you set that hook in that fish's mouth and lip. What is the average duration of time before he's back in the water swimming and you're on to the next cast? Um, it depends on, well, for one, we keep our five biggest in our boats for the course of the day. That, that being said, our live wells are at the top of the priority list. We take every bit of good care of we, as we can of those fish. Uh, we get penalized if we have a dead fish. Our organization uh, has a rule where you cannot release a dead fish. So you don't see us out there catching one and you throw it in the live well and an hour later it's dead and we chunk it back in the water. That's, that's not good. We have to bring that fish in to weigh it in. So we put those fish, say I start the tournament at seven and I catch my limit at seven 30 and then I don't get a bite the rest of the day. Those fish will live in my live well with fresh water pumping in on them all day long. I have live well treatment that I put in there to give them, uh, to either help them relax or give them more energy, depending on what time of the year it is. If it's hot, I put ice in there to keep the water cooler so they can live as comfortably as they can. And then when we weigh them in at three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, after we weigh those fish in, they're only out of the water for about two, I'd say 20 to 30 seconds total throughout the course of the day until weigh in and then they're only out of the water for maybe a minute at the, the that's a minute from the time we check in to the time they're released back into the water maybe one minute that they're out of the water from the time we because we got to put them in our bag then we walk up to the bump table what they call it and there's uh tanks there behind the stage so we set that bag it's a perforated bag so we set that bag easy down in this tank of water that has fresh water and oxygen flowing through it the whole time as we wait till our turn to weigh in. And then when we walk up to weigh in, those fish are laid on the scale, they weigh them. And if you watch a Bassmaster event, as soon as those fish are weighed, the tournament uh, director will take that bag from your hand and he will walk those behind the stage where they go in a 
a live release boat, which is a big uh, pontoon boat with a big freshwater tank on it. And then when they get to a certain number of fish in that tank, then they will take that boat, dump it in the lake, take it out in the middle of the lake and release those fish back into the, the lake or river that they came from. So when you start your day and you get five fish, that's your limit. And you go on the way to those five combined. So you could, you know, have 20 pounds, seven ounces by the end of the day, sure. depending on what size. What is the what does that first fish tell you? If it's a two pounder, does he live in your well until you prove that he's not going to be at least the average of that day? Do you always keep so, the first fish? So here's how it goes. So every lake has different, most, most of the time it's state, but every lake has a different size limit. So let's just say that it's a 12 inch limit on the particular body of water. I've done my research and I know that five 12 inches is not going to do you any good. However, I talked about that Bassmaster Classic qualification. Every day, every day's catch goes towards that qualification. And it's based off of points. You get points by each place you finish up higher in the event. So if I have a 12-inch fish in my bag and I say, man, this fish is only 12 inches, it's not going to do me any good, so I chunk it back in the water. If I only weigh in four keepers that day when my limit's five, that 12-inch bass that may weigh one pound could be a, the difference in finishing 22nd versus 17th. There's just that one pound. So in my eyes, I never throw back a keeper until I have a limit. And then, yes, once I get my limit, if I catch fish that don't meet the requirement of what I already have in my live well, then I throw those fish back. But if it's bigger than my smallest fish, then I start the culling process where I'll go in my live well. I have them marked which one's the smallest to the biggest. Then I take my sp smallest fish out. And I'm, I weigh it on a scale to see if it's bigger than the one I just caught. And if it's smaller than the one I just caught, I throw it back. Now I put the one I just caught on that marker and put it in my live well. When you're out there, the rules, what do they say as far as, uh, obviously, you had already stated in the, in the earlier stage of this conversation, Stetson, about you can't call any local help. You can't have boots on the ground to help you learn, depending on what time it is when practice starts. 30 days before, are you allowed to take your cell phone out as a professional angler and take a picture of it or update your social media or your Facebook story or your status or your Instagram story and say, Hey, just caught number three. And then your sponsors are like kept up to date on that. Or is, are they thinking that if your cell phone's out, you're looking for something on your apps that could be potentially deemed cheating on that body of water? Yeah, we can, we can use our cell phone. We can use it for uh, looking at maps. Like if we have mapping profiles on our phone or taking notes, like if I'm bed fishing and I mark a fish on a bed that it's not going to help me today, but it might help me tomorrow. I'm going to write down, put a note in my phone. Uh, it's to the left of the dock with the American flag on it. So yes, I can use it. But as far as keeping your fans and the, and the people that are watching involved, we have what we call bass track. So bass track is the, the marshal that's in your boat will will take the you catch a fish i weigh it and i say okay on my scale that fish says it it's two and a half pounds so he's going to take his phone out and he's going to go into bass track and he's going to update bass track and say stetson blaylock caught a fish that weighs two and a half pounds so now Bassmaster takes that that text that he sends in and they update it to a list that's ever going on Bassmaster website so even if i don't have a camera 
you yourself could follow along to see how my day's going based off of my bass track standing. Now, it's not 100% accurate because I'm using my handheld scale, not the official scale at the tournament. And let's just say I'm in bad cell service. So my marshal's phone doesn't have service. He can't upload that. So at 1030, I may show no fish, even though I have a limit of bass, but he may not be able to upload those fish to bass track until I get service or till he gets service on his phone. So now you got your limit and you're headed back to the dock. Are you going 70 miles an hour, even if it's only eight in the morning and you think I'm trying to figure out how do you tell yourself you're done? If you caught your limit, you could always throw one back and go for a bigger one. So how do you know it's time to gas it back to the dock and weigh in? There's never, there's never, I fish till the very last minute. You know, if we have to be in at three o'clock, I fish till two fifty-five or two fifty-six. De- depending on how far I have to run in, yes, I fish till the last second. When I shut down and I'm idling in there to check in, I want that clock to not show more than one minute or two minutes. But you, you only give yourself what? So you, you're dependent a hundred percent on the mechanics of your motor. And if there's any letdown in that at all, you don't even give yourself to get jumper cables out or do anything. Sometimes no. That's crazy. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy to me. If you have a a pretty good size limit of fish, why would you run it up until you? Well, if if the smallest thing happens, you're you're so, out of so, the money. So here's so here's the deal. You have to look at it several ways. If this is day one, and I've got 18 pounds, and I know that 15 pounds is usually pretty good there, I'm coming in 30 minutes early. I'm 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 at least going to be to where I can see the takeoff, and then just just get there easy and quick. But if it's the final day and I know that I need 20 pounds to have a chance to win, I'm pushing it to the very end because the worst I can do is finish 10th, which is still a really great payday. So I'm going to take every risk that I have to to better my chances to have a chance to win. What is the average um, when you when you go into any style tournament like this, whether it's the Pan Am Games for Jiu Jitsu or it's a golf tournament, it's an entry fee. When I was competitive duck calling and goose calling, I'd have to pay seventy five dollars to enter. Um, if you win, you got some contests were up to fifteen thousand um, dollars. Not many, but some of them were. What is the average, or is it up front at the beginning of the year? Do you have a sponsor that you say, "All right, you're going to be responsible for all of my entry fees," or is it is it is it pretty reasonable? I would think that with that big of a payday and paying down that many spots, that you probably got to pay a pretty good chunk of change to even be in the contest. Or is that, or are there entry fees when you get to that eighty eight one of those eighty eight guys on the elite tour? No, we we do have entry fees, but that's that's the that's the having skin in the game. I mean, if you want to, if you to my in my opinion, the competition's always stronger if you have some skin in the game. And yes, we do have entry fees, and yes, that's part of the sponsor uh, partnership and aspect of it. Is hey, I need all the help I can get, so I'm making money when I do well on the trail, even though I have an entry fee. I want to be able to go out there and not worry about having to cash a check to pay those entry fees. I want that to be taken care of by sponsors. And that, that way I can worry about my job, which is going out there and winning the event. 
Next time we talk to Stetson Blaylock, everybody out there at This Life Ain't For Everybody, we're going to get more down into the nitty gritty on how this man actually wins. I wanted to educate myself a little bit today. I hope he answered a lot of questions. I think this lifestyle is fascinating. You get to literally make money doing what we did with a bobber and a rod with our grandpas growing up. Yeah, I don't think it gets any better than that. Stetson Blaylock, thank you very much, brother. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. We're going to do part two coming up here very soon. This life ain't for everybody. We're also going to ask Stetson to be a guest on our sister podcast, The Foul Life, to talk to him about his other obsession, mallard duck hunting, the trees, anywhere he can get on them in the state of Arkansas. You guys saw our podcast and heard our podcast with PBR champion Chase Outlaw, who also hails from the state of Arkansas, who's obsessed with duck hunting, duck calling, everything ducks, and getting on the back of 2,000-pound bulls that jump four feet in the air. We're going to have Chase back on here again. Maybe we'll even get a little fishing trip going with Chase, myself, and you, see if you guys can teach this Westerner a little bit about the Arkansas way of life. Please remember to continue and support the sponsors and partners that support us, the Foul Life TV, JargonGameCalls.com, Banded.com, AveryOutdoors.com, ThisLifeAin'tForEverybody.com. Thank you so much. Humbling to see the support of our brands. Tom, hit that button. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. This is going to be Leith Lofton, written by Leith Lofton and Drake White. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you all very much. I'd rather be poor living off in a hole Life on earth won't last too long So what you gonna do when the money's all gone